The shofar can reflect the removal of a barrier as a Jericho or the establishment of something positive, like the reign of Solomon. All this tells us that for such a raw, seemingly simple musical instrument, the shofar is actually quite complex. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 66, The Many Shofars of Jewish History. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In September of 2020, in the midst of the trials and challenges of observing the high holidays during a pandemic, a unique and strikingly symbolic ritual was born, the international shofar blowing. Thus, the Jerusalem Post reported, quote, A rabbi has become a uniting force on the Caribbean island of St. Martin as he prepares to blow the shofar on a national border, allowing Jewish residents on both sides of the island to perform the mitzvah of hearing the horn blown. St. Martin covers just 88 kilometers square, about 2.6 times the size of Manhattan, and is home to around 80,000 people. Yet its tiny size makes it distinctive in one way. It is the smallest landmass in the world containing the territory of two distinct countries. The northern part of the island is French St. Martin, capital Marigo, while the southern portion is Dutch St. Martin, with its own capital of Philipsburg. End quote. So two countries, one island, usually with an entirely open border between them. But with the advent of COVID, the French side shut it down. And this created a problem for the Chabad rabbi on the island, Rabbi Moshe Shanowitz. Quote, Shanowitz lives in Simpson Bay in St. Martin, but many of his congregants live in the northern St. Martin. When he realized this meant they would not hear the shofar this Rosh Hashanah, he came up with a cunning plan to blow the shofar on the Bellevue border allowing Jews from both sides of the island to participate in the mitzvah of hearing the horn blown, end quote. Here we have it, a shofar that transcends borders, uniting Jews across countries, testifying to the profound spiritual bonds that they share. And in its own way, it also reflects one of the purposes of this Rosh Hashanah ritual, to break down the barriers between members of a covenantal community. Understanding this will allow us to better comprehend the symbolism of the shofar throughout the centuries, as well as a striking Sukkot ritual practiced to this day. It is at the Battle of Jericho that the shofar makes one of its most famous biblical appearances. God commands Joshua to bring about a supernatural event that will allow for the city's conquest. Chapter 6, verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given into thy hand Jericho and its king and the mighty men of valor, and you shall go round the city all the men of war going about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days, and seven priests shall bear before the ark seven shofars of ram's horns. And on the seventh day you shall circle the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the shofars. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the shofar, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat. We will discuss the conquest and its aftermath in a forthcoming presentation. For now, let us ponder this ritual that the Almighty establishes to bring the wall crashing down. As Rabbi Yigal Ariel has noted in his book on Joshua, the cycles described in the biblical book bear a striking similarity in some respects to what is known today as Hoshanot, in which, on most days of the holiday of Sukkot, worshippers in synagogue circle the center of the sanctuary, the bima where someone stands holding a Torah scroll, 
with Hoshana, a plea for salvation, invoked as the procession occurs. And on the seventh day of Sukkot, known as Hoshana Rabbah, seven circuits are made. All this is done in remembrance of temple times, when it was the altar of the Almighty that the pilgrims to Jerusalem revolved around throughout Sukkot. Indeed, as Rabbi Ariel further points out, in some synagogues today on Hoshana Rabbah, on the seventh day of Sukkot, the shofar is also blown as each circuit is completed. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is indeed what is done in Congregation Sherith Israel, the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue in Manhattan. The parallels to Joshua are indeed compelling, but therefore also, at least initially, enigmatic. For while both the original act in the time of Joshua and the contemporary one on the holiday invoke the assistance of the Almighty, the Sukkot celebrants now surely do not seek the collapse of the bima or of the altar in Jerusalem. What then is the connection between the circles of Joshua around Jericho and the Sukkot circuits? The answer, perhaps, is that the walls that the Sukkot celebrants seek to dissolve are spiritual. The Torah and the original altar, which are circled on Sukkot, are supreme symbols of the covenant, and what is hoped for is the destruction of the barriers that we erect between ourselves and the covenant, between ourselves and the Almighty, as well as the barriers that we erect between each other. And thus, the sound of the international chauffeur at St. Martin's, transcending the boundaries that had been purportedly placed, is resonant in more ways than one. The chauffeur of the High Holy Days is considered a call to repentance, and the tale of Joshua, joined with other scriptural passages about the shofar, allows us to understand the complexity of what exactly the shofar's call asks of us. We return to Joshua chapter 6, verse 8. And it came to pass when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven shofars of ram's horns passed on before the Lord and blew with the shofars, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. And those dressed for war went before the priests that blew with the horns, and the rearward came after the ark, and the priests going on and blowing with the shofars. And it came to pass on the seventh time, when the priests blew with the shofars, that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. So the people shouted as they blew the shofars, and it came to pass. When the people heard the sound of the shofar, that the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. The word here, for the mighty shout issued by Israel, Tru'ah Gedola, is similar to the word for one of the notes that is blown during the High Holy Days on the shofar itself. The Tru'ah, a broken blast of the shofar, is an approximation of a human cry. And in some Sephardic synagogues, the Rosh Hashanah prayers end with a long shofar sound called a Tru'ah Gedola, emitted by the horn. But in Joshua, the sounding of the horn is followed by a truagdola, a great cry that is issued by the people from the very depths of their being. The idea seems to be that the clarion call of the shofar is intended to inspire emotion within us, to inspire a cry from inside ourselves. But what sort of emotion and what sort of cry? Here is where it gets complicated. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, the shofar summons in times of jubilation and celebration as well as in moments of crisis and battle. It appears, as we saw, at Sinai, where it served to coronate the king of kings. It will later be used at Solomon's coronation. We have also seen how the shofar served in Leviticus, long before the Philadelphia Liberty Bell, to proclaim liberty throughout the land, to announce the jubilee, 
in which slaves were freed and the ancestral lands of the Israelites reclaimed. The shofar can reflect the removal of a barrier as at Jericho or the establishment of something positive, like the reign of Solomon. All this tells us that for such a raw, seemingly simple musical instrument, the shofar is actually quite complex. And the complexity illustrated in a national context throughout the Bible allows us to understand how on the high holy days, on an individual level, the shofar also bears a complex message for our psyche, for our souls. The shofar's cry may ask of us to remove in repentance something negative within ourselves, a wall, if you will, within ourselves. But it will also seek something that is affirming and positive. It calls for dismay at negative aspects within us, but also for the summoning forward of the best aspects of ourselves. As Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein put it in a lecture on repentance, quote, A desperate cry must come as a creed occur, issued de profundis, from the depths of the heart. One needs a cry like the shofarot at Jericho, which were able to destroy the walls by sound alone, end quote. But, as Rabbi Lichtenstein goes on to argue, this is not enough. We are also asked to summon forward the positive. We are asked, as he puts it in a felicitous phrase, to ring out the old and ring in the new. Ring out the old, that's ring, W-R-I-N-G, and ring in the new, R-I-N-G. Remove the negative, strengthen the positive. Both are requirements that are asked of us. Both are involved in the chauffeur's clarion call. Martin Seligman, University of Pennsylvania's prominent father of the field known as positive psychology, discussed an epiphany that he had one day which he says he hopes has changed the current course of the field of psychology. Quote, I was in my garden with my five-year-old daughter, Nikki, and to make another confession, even though I've written a book about children and have worked with children, I'm no good with them since I'm time-urgent and task-oriented. I was weeding, and Nikki was throwing weeds into the air, dancing, singing, and having a wonderful time. And I shouted at her. She walked away puzzled and walked back and said, Daddy, I want to talk to you. I said, yeah, Nikki. And she said, Daddy, do you remember before my fifth birthday? She had turned five about two weeks before. I was a whiner. Did I whined every day? I said, yeah, I remember you were a horror. Have you noticed since my fifth birthday, Daddy, I haven't whined once? Yeah, Nikki. And she said, Daddy, on my fifth birthday, I decided I wasn't going to whine anymore. And that was the hardest thing I've ever done. And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. That's what she said to him. And at that moment, Seligman writes, he realized three things. First, he goes on, quote, I realized that Nikki was right about me, that I had spent more than 50 years being a nimbus cloud. And so Seligman continues that he resolved to change, to work, in other words, to remove this aspect of himself that one might say created barriers between himself and others. Second, he further wrote, quote, I realized that my theories of child rearing were wrong. The theories of child rearing that the last two generations have been raised with in psychology are remedial. They basically say the job of the parent is to correct the kid's errors. And somehow, out of the correction of errors, an exemplary child rises, end quote. But Seligman realized, as he argues, that one is also obligated to cultivate the positive traits within children. And that led Seligman argued to what he considers the third and most important aspect of his epiphany. Psychology had been, to a great extent, remedial, focused on correcting flaws in human beings and less about making manifest their talents. But as Seligman further puts it, quote, 
When you lie in bed at night, you're not thinking about how to go from negative five to negative two. You're generally thinking about how to go from plus two to plus six in life. It became my mission in life from that moment in the garden to help to create a positive psychology, a psychology focusing not only on doing away with the negative, but also in encouraging individuals to make manifest their positive traits, to become the strongest individuals that they can be, end quote. Thus, ladies and gentlemen, perhaps the chauffeur of Jericho and the chauffeur of repentance and return are all related. And when we ponder this further, we realize that fascinatingly, two of the most famous chauffeur blowings in Jewish history, which occurred thousands of years apart, both involved walls, but the tales seem to be mirror images of one another. As Israel entered the land, the chauffeur blast brought down the walls of Jericho, and many millennia later, the chauffeur of Rabbi Shlomo Goren heralded the Jewish return to ancient Jerusalem and to the Western Wall in 1967, the Western Wall on which many weeping soldiers leaned in imitation of their ancestors. Does the chauffeur tear down walls, or does it celebrate and build up walls? The answer appears to be both, and the chauffeur asks of both within ourselves. In the end, the French government of St. Martin decided to open the border in time for Rosh Hashanah. But Rabbi Shanowitz chose to take his chauffeur and blow at the border anyway. And this is appropriate, for as we have said, the chauffeur itself seeks to cross purported barriers, to dissolve those barriers that we have often placed between ourselves and those that we are called to care about. One of the most interesting moments in Natan Sharansky's prison memoir, Fear No Evil, comes at the end, when he describes the challenges not of imprisonment, but of freedom. Sharansky, of course, felt blessed to be in Israel, to be finally free. But he also wondered whether, having found freedom, he would retain all the lessons that he learned in prison. He worries, in other words, whether having now thankfully left the physical walls of his jail, he may now allow the erection of spiritual walls between himself and others. Recalling how a postcard from his wife with a picture of the chauffeur had created a clarion call psychologically connecting him in jail to those that he loved, and remembering how spiritually close he felt with the entire Jewish people while in prison, he concludes his memoir by pondering whether the cacophonous cocoon that is free society might allow him to lose certain profound spiritual feelings. He writes, quote, In the punishment cell, life was much simpler. Every day brought only one choice, good or evil, white or black, saying yes or no to the KGB. Moreover, I had all the time I needed to think about these choices, to concentrate on the most fundamental problems of existence, to test myself in fear, in hope, in belief, in love. And now, lost in thousands of mundane choices, I suddenly realize that there's no time to reflect on the bigger questions. How to enjoy the vivid colors of freedom without losing the existential depth I felt in prison? How to absorb the many sounds of freedom without allowing them to jam the stirring call of the shofar that I heard so clearly in the punishment cell. And most important, how, in all these thousands of meetings, handshakes, interviews, and speeches, to retain that unique feeling of the interconnection of human souls, which I discovered in the Gulag. End quote. Sharansky wrote this many decades ago. Now, in an age of social media, earpods, iPhones, and much else, the cacophony of our cocoon has only grown stronger. The spiritual barriers, one might say, have only increased. For those listening to this Bible 365 on the day that it has been issued, on Sukkot, 
Hoshana Rabbah is almost upon us. The seven cycles in the synagogue are about to take place. Wherever we are, and whether or not your synagogue will sound the shofar on this day, let us listen for the call Sharansky once heard, breaking the barriers in our lives, summoning us to God and to each other. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, wishing you a Chag Sameach, signing off.